exclusive podcast from Impact 89FM. To the MSU Rodeo Club, um, and they'll be here to talk about the Spartan Stampede this weekend, um, which is Friday and Saturday. Um, so do you guys want to introduce yourselves and how you guys are involved with this event? Uh, my name is Justin Miller. Uh, I'm the president of the organization. I'm Nicole Phillips, and I am the vice president of the MSU Rodeo Club. Now, give a brief overview about what the rodeo is about, what people can expect to see there. Oh, the rodeo is an action-packed weekend. Um, Cowboys and cowgirls from all over the country, uh, Canada, anywhere from Utah um, all the way east. Um, The stock that we'll be having this week uh, at our rodeo has been, um, just was out at the International Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma City. So it's going to be some real good, real good bulls and broncs and should see some pretty good wrecks, pretty good wrecks this weekend. So people come from like all over um, the nation and in Canada. I mean, how big is this event? Uh, the event brings about uh, 300 competitors every year. So. Okay, and how often do you do this? Uh, we do it once a year, every February. Okay, and this is the 40th year you've done this? This is our 40th annual. It's a big celebration. We have a lot going on um, to celebrate this milestone of 40 years. What are you doing to celebrate? We have um, alumni coming in. Um, we're going to honor the alumni this year um, in the arena. So that'll be a really nice um, gesture to them. Our founders, we have a couple founders coming in, so we'll be able to um, announce them and get them recognition of this great event that we have now. Okay. Um, and, I mean, how did, how did the rodeo start and how has it evolved um, from 40 years ago? Oh, the rodeo club began... Uh, back in 1969 with a small group of students that just wanted to follow their passion of rodeo, started a little organization, uh, became a member of the uh, Intercollegiate Rodeo Association, which is the colleges from all over the country competing in their regions. Um, from there, it's just kind of grown. Uh, you know, we, we, we got s- our organization, we got switched regions uh, back in, I believe, early 2000 from uh, the Wisconsin Great Lakes Plains region to the Ozark region. And those schools that were in that region um, didn't like coming up here through the snow uh, in February. Mm-hmm. So we decided then it was time to make the move to uh, a professionally sanctioned rodeo. Oh, wow. Um, so what, what kind of events go on at rodeos? I mean, are people just kind of like on the back of a horse trying to get you know kicked off? I mean, what other events are there to do? Um, we have we do have the rough stock, um, which is the bull riding and the bronc riding, and that is um, that's the action. A lot of people come to see that. But we also have timed events um, for the women. We have barrel racing, which is really exciting to watch, and then we also have roping events, which um, they do team roping and calf roping, as well as bulldogging, which is steer wrestling. So we've got the full full rodeo. So I feel like I'm not. I don't know this lingo. So it's roping like lassoing? Yes. Okay. And then what is steer wrestling? Steer wrestling is um, the cowboy chases uh, a small steer out of the, the chute, and he tries to get it to the ground, um, jumps off his horse, and wrestles the steer to the ground. So it's man against steer. Yes. Who <laughs> usually wins? Usually the man. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> they, they usually come out of the chutes running 25, 30 mile an hour. Lean off their horse, oh my gosh. head aim for the head, jump off, 
hopefully the steer doesn't stop and they hit the ground, <laughs> uh, which has happened quite a few times. I mean, uh, how often do people get injured at these events? Or do you guys not want to say that? <laughs> oh, it all depends. Uh, yeah. You, you become injured, really, if you want to be injured. Um, it's it's kind of the name of the game. A few years back, uh, we had a guy that was knocked out uh, when he was uh, riding bareback. And everybody thought he was safe. Uh he rode excellent, but the last three seconds of his ride, he wasn't he wasn't conscious, and uh, he came loose and got pitched through the air well, about 15, 20 feet in the air. So. Wow. So, I mean, what's the most dangerous event that goes on at the rodeo? Oh, most dangerous event would have to be the bull riding. Yeah. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about bale racing. How does that work? Barrel racing is a timed event, so the fastest time wins. Um, you race your horse around a pattern of three barrels. Okay. And then um, down to the end of the chute, and then they stop the time, and so the fastest fastest horse wins. Okay, I was I was envisioning women getting in barrels and like <laughs> rolling around. <laughs> in that. Um, what's what's your favorite event here? Oh, I'd have to say my favorite event, other than the bull riding, I'd have to say the team roping. Uh, it's kind of a bias. I I team roped for about three or four years. So okay. I would agree. I'm also a team roper of 12 years. So okay. And is this kind of a competition event? Yeah. Um, this year we're sanctioned uh, with the International Professional Rodeo Association and Mid States Rodeo Association. So the cowboys and cowgirls will be coming from all over and competing for points to make it to their uh, either to the national finals or to the Mid States finals every year. And have you guys competed in this event before? I have not. I have, but I am um, from the Professional Rodeo Association, which is a different um, association from International Professional. Um, so I've been to the national finals in Las Vegas um, a couple of times, but it is a different sanction. So um, things are a little bit different. Um, I'm actually from Montana, so um, it's it's a different, a little bit different feel. But it's rodeo is is what you do. So. I mean, what has your experience been doing rodeos? What's been, like, tell me a story of one of your favorite moments. Oh, gosh. There's there's a lot. Um, I guess one of my uh, favorite moments was uh, being the junior rodeo queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, for women, that is one of the top honors of a rodeo, is to be honored as the queen, and you... I think the best part of it is being able to share my love for rodeo with everyone else. Um, and I guess being being the queen was, was one way to show how much I actually do love the sport of rodeo. So that's my... That's my now they're rodeo kings or they're just rodeo queens? Um, it depends on where you are. We have MSU rodeo kings, but um, in the, the national associations, they just have queens. Okay. Um, now, how long have you guys been involved in rodeo? Oh, I think I'm going on about seven or eight years. Um, I bought my first horse when I was 14 or 15 to show in 4-H, and kind of from there decided I wanted to make the move, so I started training my, my horse uh, for roping. Um, it was a good time. I met a lot of new, a lot of new people. You know, Everybody's willing to be out there and go out on a limb and help you. And it's, you know, it's, I, I, I did it, you know, for the, for the fun of it and to meet new people. 
I've been riding since I was five, and um, I've been competing for 12 years now. So um, it is, it's a, a great way to meet people, make connections, and it's a lifelong. People you meet are, are your friends forever, so it is, it's just a passion. So you guys are involved in the radio, rodeo club on campus. So let's say it was just a person like myself, never really. I mean, I went to Girl Scout camp and rode horses there. But um, if I was like, oh, I really want to get involved in this, but I've had no experience, what would you guys say to someone like me? Come on out. Really? Yeah. I mean, what? I've, some of these things sound pretty intense. I mean, how, do you train people who don't have any experience? Um, a lot of the a lot of people in the club have uh, the the experience uh, barrel racing, bull riding, um, and there's schools that you can go to um, and just come out, find somebody that uh, is doing what you what you want to learn how to do, and uh, and hop into it. It's mm-hmm. kind of the easiest way to go. Okay. Um, now. Uh, have any of you guys ever gotten hurt being in a rodeo? Uh, not being in a rodeo. Uh, working a few rodeos. Uh, get kicked here and there, and you just kind of put a smile on your face and <laughs> just keep on going. How about I, you? Yeah, I actually was in a very serious accident on my sophomore year of high school. Um, I spooked my horse when I was barrel racing. Um, and he bucked me off and stomped on me several times, and I broke just about every bone in my body. So wow. I was lucky to come back and still compete after that. So. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, how often do rodeos occur in Michigan? Oh, uh, you, during the summer you can usually find a rodeo uh, about any weekend. Uh, a lot of the county fairs and stuff will have rodeos. Um, there's a lot of little community rodeos that are put on, uh, a lot of times in the fall, in the winter, uh, for the locals to to be able to stay in shape and and kind of hone up on their skills before they really start really start spending and and get out there and uh, you know get out with in the professional uh, arenas. Now, how much work goes into putting on a rodeo? A lot. <laughs> we're uh, we're a student organization with about uh, 25 members, and um, you know we start after our rodeo this weekend. We're gonna start planning for for next year. Um, you know, it takes about a year for us to to get everything in line and, and stuff like that. Now this year, or was it last year, the Spartan Stampede was nominated um, the IPRA Indoor Rodeo of the Year. Now, what does IPRA stand for, and how important is this acknowledgement? Um, IPRA stands for International Professional Rodeo Association, and the honor to us to be nominated by our stock contractor last year is just huge. Um, being a student organization on a college campus, we're competing with hundreds of rodeos across the country every year, and to be that small group of people that is being recognized out there um, is is really big to us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now, you're from Montana. What brought you to Michigan? Um, MSU, actually. Um, the College of Ag is one of the top in the nation um, for agricultural schools, so it just brought me here, and so that's how I found it. And then was having a rodeo club here also an incentive? I actually didn't know about the rodeo club until after I was already on campus, so that was a plus. Okay. Now, how many people are involved in the rodeo club? 
Uh, this year, I believe we're right around 25 students. Okay. And um, talk about some of um, the stories that people um, have told you that they've experienced over the years being rodeos. If you can think of any off the bat. I don't even know. Um, there's a lot of stories <laughs> out there. Um, you know, it's people make a lot of friends, mm-hmm. and those friends stay forever. Um, you know, our alumni meet up every year uh, just to kind of meet back up and see how everybody's doing. Um, you know, it's, yeah, a lot of stories. Okay. Now, if I was a fly on the wall at this event, um, the rodeo, um, describe to um, me what the people would look like there, what does it smell like, and what do you hear? I mean, what what some what are some things that people can expect coming to the rodeo? Oh, Loud music, action-packed, dust flying, just a good time. So you're going to be line dancing? There won't be line dancing. (laughs) Um, You know, the competitors are coming from all over. They're they're running to win the money, so they're going to be putting everything they got into it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be a really good year. Now, is there anything else you want to add before we start wrapping things up? Oh, just, uh, you know, this year is marking our 40th anniversary. Um, and, uh, you know, be great. It's going to be a good good weekend. Okay, and when is the event, when and where is the event, and where can people go for more information? Uh, the event is going to be held out at the MSU Livestock Pavilion uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, Friday evening, and then two shows on Saturday. Um, for more information, uh, they can go to our website or the Breslin Center um, for more information about that. All right, well, thank you, Justin Nicole, for coming in. Again, for listeners that are just tuning in, I was talking with Justin Nicole from the Rodeo Club to talk about the Spartan Stampede this weekend. Again, it's Friday and Saturday. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having thank us. You. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want mysmokefreeapartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. Mysmokefreeapartment.org. When you get up in the morning and turn on the radio, you don't want to hear those other guys talking on your way to work, do you? You don't want to hear talking. You want to hear music. So here at The Impact, we are making you a promise. We're calling it the More Music Morning's 89-second play. We, The Impact, pledge that every weekday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., we will shut up and play music. We pledge that we won't talk for more than 89 seconds at a time, meaning more music all morning long. We pledge that every caller who requests a song between 8 and 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, will be entered to win a great Impact prize. And we pledge that in return for your listening to us, we will listen to you and play more music that you want to hear. So tune into The Impact for more music mornings. Let us know what to play, and maybe you could win some cool stuff. Only here on 88.9 The Impact. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, 
back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and here in the studio I have Brian O'Shea, who will be giving a talk at Abrams Planetarium this Thursday. The talk is called The Secret Lives of Galaxies. Now, Brian, can you tell me a little bit about what what this talk will be about? Can you give me some anecdotes about your lecture? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm an astronomer at uh, Michigan State, so I'm a new professor in the physics and astronomy department. And what I do um, for my research is study how galaxies form and how they evolve. And so um, the title hints at sort of one of the things that I study, which is um, the fact that there are lots of things in galaxies that don't meet the eye. And so, for example, almost every galaxy has a gigantic black hole in the middle of it. And this black hole is what it sounds like. It's this, it's uh, something that sucks everything in, even light. And it's very interesting because they weigh millions or billions of times more than our sun does. So they're incredibly large objects. And we don't know, they're very hard to see, and we don't really know how they got there. And so that's something that you don't see when you just look at the galaxy with the telescope. Um, like you have in your backyard. You have to do something like um, make an X-ray telescope and put it in orbit and look at it that way or look at it in the radio spectrum or something like that. And so we find that when we look at galaxies in these different ways through X-rays, radio, things like that, um, you see all sorts of things that you would never imagine just looking at a tel- uh, looking at a galaxy from your backyard you know, with a little telescope. And so that's the idea Um, behind this talk, I want to talk about um, these things that we see that we wouldn't ordinarily know about. So with black holes, um, you say, you know, they're huge, they, you know, weigh more than the sun, um, and they, um, do they, do they, can they suck in like planets? Absolutely. Well, anything that gets close enough to a black hole can get sucked in, um, even light. And so that's, uh, that's why they're called black holes. Their gravitational pull is so strong that absolutely anything could get sucked in. So. Do, you, do you think they lead anywhere, or do you think it's just kind of, if you get sucked in, it's just into nowhere? You know, it's very hard to say. We have no, uh, there's really no way of probing beyond this, uh, what we call the event horizon, which is the, the point at which not even light can escape. And so uh, some people think that there's nothing in there. Some people think that black holes are actually portals to another universe, and uh, it all sort of depends on how you interpret the math, but it could be either of those things. Or how many sci-fi movies you've seen. Precisely. <laughs> um, what, is the, what fascinates you the most about the work that you do? That's a good question. Uh, I have always really been interested in the universe, and so I was a physics major in college. I... One, you know, I, I like to tinker. You know, I tinker with my oven. I tinker with, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so, um, I really enjoy pulling things apart to understand how they work. And I guess at some point, I really just wanted to understand how the universe works on the biggest scales. And I, I guess, I was never actually in astronomy. Um, I never really owned a telescope or anything like that. But I really like galaxies, and I'm a theoretical physicist, so I like simulating things, and I like writing down the math and trying to understand it that way, and so just uh, just sort of how it ended up. Mm-hmm. Now, do you use telescopes a lot with the work that you do now? <laughs> I personally don't ever use telescopes in my work. Um, like I said, I do theoretical work, so I actually um, 
use supercomputers to model how galaxies form. So I do, I use uh, computers at the High Performance Computing Center here on campus and at various places around the country to make models of galaxies and understand uh, how they interact with each other and how they get to be the way that they are. Um, that said, there are quite a few people here in the physics and astronomy department that do use telescopes. And so actually the university owns a piece of a telescope called SOAR, which is down in Chile. And they actually do a lot of observations that help me in my work. Okay. Now, will, the, will there be a visual presentation in the planetarium when you're giving your talk on Thursday? Oh, absolutely. There will be tons of beautiful pictures. What can, what can people expect to see? Let's see. So... Um, something that we're trying to understand is how you get all of the different types of galaxies. So, for example, um, we think that the Milky Way is a spiral galaxy, so it looks like a big disk with these really pretty spiral arms in it. But there's only one kind of, that's only one kind of galaxy. There are also um, dwarf galaxies, which look very different, and elliptical galaxies, which are big, sort of round uh, things that are full of stars, um, but no spiral arms. And so I'm going to show lots of pictures of different kinds of galaxies, um, and then I'm going to show a bunch of movies from my simulations. And so um, as part of my work, I do... I make movies for um, PBS, National Geographic, oh, okay. the Discovery Channel. And so um, we actually just released a show, um, which I probably shouldn't talk about, uh, but it's going to be on uh, TV fairly soon. And I'm going to show some of the test movies that we did for that. So people will actually get to see movies of how galaxies, or how we think galaxies form over billions of years. Wow, and so they're, they're very, very pretty movies. Oh, cool. So what... Um what are some things that we do know about other galaxies? Oh, gosh, we know tremendous numbers of things about other galaxies. So uh, we have, um, there are a bunch of surveys. So a survey is when you take a telescope and you essentially point it out at the sky and just look at little strips of the sky and do it over and over and over again. And uh, Michigan State is part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is mapped about a quarter of the sky and found over 200 million different objects, including over a million different galaxies. And so from that, we know that galaxies come in a huge range of sizes. So our galaxy is sort of a big one. Um, it's, uh, let's see, it would be 2 trillion times the mass of our sun. So that's 2 followed by 12 zeros. Wow. Um, but it's not one of the biggest ones. The biggest galaxies are 10 times as big as that. And the smallest ones are thousands of times smaller. And so when we look out at the sky, we see all of these different galaxies. We see spiral galaxies. We see these little dwarf, tiny little dwarf galaxies that don't look anything like that. We see these huge elliptical galaxies that are very, very different as well. Um, and we see galaxies interacting with each other. We see uh, galaxies that are merging into each other. And I'll show some pictures of that from my talk. Um, and you see little galaxies in orbit around big galaxies and all sorts of things. So we know a tremendous amount of information. You know, we know a tremendous amount of things about these galaxies. Do you think that there's, with all of these galaxies out there, do you think that there's one that's similar to the Milky Way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Milky Way, uh, as things go, you know, this is the galaxy we live in, and um, I hate to say it, but it's a pretty generic galaxy. It's on the big side, but in the universe that we can see, um, there have to be billions of galaxies just like it, or very, very close. 
Do you think there's another Earth out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about another Earth in terms of, you know, is there an Earth with people sitting in a radio studio talking yeah. about us? <laughs> um, but there are definitely planets out in the universe like our own. So or, believe, I'm sure there are. Do you believe that there's, there's life in other galaxies? I think so, yes. I mean, the, the odds are very much in favor of it. Okay. Um, now, have we ever seen planets from other galaxies? Well, we haven't seen planets in other galaxies, but we've seen planets in, uh, around other stars in our galaxy. And so um, it turns out that it's hard to see planets around other stars because the planets are typically very, very little compared to the stars. So, for example, um, the Earth weighs about one three hundred thousandth of the mass of our own sun. And so it's also very tiny. And so seeing things that are small and light compared to the star they're around is hard. Um, but we can see we can see planets like Jupiter uh, around other suns very easily. And so I think that the current count of planets that we've found around other stars is around 300, something like that. Oh, wow. But these are all really close to us in the galaxy now. The galaxy is 100 million light years across, and these hundreds of stars are all within, you know, just 500 light years of us. Okay. Now, people, some people say that something terrible will happen in 2012 and that we'll all die. Based on your work and your knowledge, do you think that's true? Um, well, so, so the, the idea of us all dying in 2012 comes from um, the Mayan calendar, I think. And essentially, that's when the clock runs out on their calendar, or the odometer turns over, or whatever, you, however you want to put it. But uh, there's no um, astronomical evidence that that's going to happen. Uh, that said, the Andromeda galaxy, which is the biggest nearby galaxy, is going to uh, merge with our own galaxy in about 2 billion years. So that could have much more interesting consequences. But I think we're safe in 2012. Okay. Um, now, is there anything else you want to add before I start wrapping things up? Um, no, I think that's about it. Okay. And again, um, you're doing a talk at the Abrams Planetarium at what time on Thursday? 7.30 on Thursday. 7.30, and that's called The Secret Lives of Galaxies. Can people go anywhere for more information? Um, let's see. They can go to the Physics Department website, which is www.pa.msu.edu. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles... Inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. 
Welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. And on the phone, I have Melissa, um, who's a part of NASO, to talk about the powwow coming up this weekend. Now, Melissa, um, she's on the phone right now. Can you tell me a little bit about this, um, the powwow that will be happening at Jenison Fieldhouse this weekend? Absolutely. Um, we are going to be there on Saturday and Sunday, uh, both days at 10 a.m. Um, it's the 26th annual powwow. So, you know, we've been doing this for quite some time now. Um, I mean, there's going to be so much stuff going on. We have Native American um, artwork from over 50 vendors. There will be a lot of music, food. I mean, to Natives, it's pretty much described as like a a big family reunion. (laughs) Yeah. So is this a competition? Um, Yes, it is. It's um, a competition dance. There will be prizes for each dance category. Um, So most of the dancers do come, you know, to make some money, but... Um, I mean, spectators can come. That's pretty much more, the event is more of a spectator thing. Um, but, yeah, there is there is some uh, money prizes involved. Um, now, what do the costumes look like there? Um, we actually, we refer to them as regalia. Okay. Um, yeah, there's just, just, out of respect, we don't refer to them as costumes. Okay. And they're basically um, just very traditional. Uh, some of them can date back to, you know, extreme um, like ceremonies and things like that, but there are a lot of newer dances such as the grass dance, um, and men wear extremely flashy and colorful um, regalia pieces that don't have any sentimental meaning, but they're just really cool to look at. So um, people can expect a lot of colors um, and just some really amazing artwork and beading on the regalia themselves. Now, I've attended a power before, and I remember reading something about that there, there are certain colors that have certain meaning, or, for example, um, like the eagle feather, that's very, very important to some of um, the things that are worn. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, eagle feathers are extremely sacred to Native people, um, and, you know, especially if during any of the dances an eagle feather falls to the ground, that's, you know, that's like silence time. Everyone stops what they're doing. Um, and they do a special procedure, you know, to get that eagle feather off the ground. Um, I'm not sure of the specific meanings behind it. I just know that, um, you know, traditionally it's been used in a lot of sacred ceremonies. Um, so, you know, that's pretty much why it's so important. And, you know, it's, it's a big respect thing. Okay. Now, um I'm assuming there's going to be lots of different types of dances that are going on. Do each um, of the dances tell a story or have a deep history behind them? Um, some of them do. There's one in particular um, called the Jingle Dress Dance, um, and it's a woman's dance where they wear um, these gowns that have these silver balls, or not balls, like cone-shaped things that hang from their dresses, and they jingle, you know, as they dance, jingle dress dancing. Um, but the story behind that is back in the day there was um, a lot of sickness going around, a lot of people were dying, and um, some fella had a dream that he, or no, if his daughter danced this jingle dress dance wearing the specific regalia, she would magically, you know, recover from her illness, and that's just kind of how that dance came into place. Um, and then a lot of the other ones are more traditional um you know, that were done for ceremonious purposes. but And then, like I said before, the grass dance is more of a, um, you know, ju- just to be, it's more of like a performance, like if you were to go to a ballet or, 
you know, something like that. It's just to be watched. There's really no traditional aspect behind it. Okay. Now, why are powwows so important in uh, in Native American culture? Um, well, really, like I said before, they're they're like a family reunion. I mean, um, my family especially, every year we go to a powwow and you see people from your tribe, from other tribes. Um, and it's just kind of nice to have, uh, you know, the Native community gather in one place and, you know, to kind of recollect our heritage, I guess. Um, and I know in the past a lot of them were used for ceremonious purposes, but nowadays it's more, you know, just a social gathering. And um, through, like, times of assimilation back in the 1950s, they kind of became almost like a spectator thing. And um, I think that was kind of the transition between ceremonious and performance. Um, you know, people came to watch instead of to uh, celebrate uh, religious, you know, aspects and things like that. Now, how long have powwows been a, a lo- around for, and did um, the ceremony ever change when, let's say, um, people um, colonization was happening, people were coming to America, and there was all this, um, I guess, westernization upon Native Americans where they were sent to boarding schools and kind of um, their culture was almost beat out of them, or, you know, they were just, like, stuck on reservations. Um, how, I mean, were... did the, did powwows change then? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, you know, in a simulation when they were forcing the culture um, out of people, a lot of them lost a lot of that. You know, a lot of the dances were lost, the language especially. I mean, I don't know how to speak my traditional language, and not many of my family members do. So um, I think that, like I said, it was more of a, um, a performance aspect instead of having, like, real meaning behind it. Um and, yeah, definitely boarding schools and the colonization, the U.S. government influences, I think, extremely changed, um, you know, the way that powwows were centered and things like that. And, um, you know, traditionally it was it, it was basically like going to a church and praying. It was, you know, a very religious, ceremonial um, event. Now, besides powwows, what are some other strong traditions in Native American culture, such as, um, like, sweat huts or naming ceremonies or, um, I think they call it the shaking tent? Um, well, I know with my tribe, um, we do we use the sweat lodges, which I've never actually been to one. I really would like to go and experience that. Um, but, you know, powwow is the big one, and I think that non-Native people are also becoming more familiar with that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, spiritual things like going and visiting with a medicine man or woman. Nowadays there's both the, the two genders. Um, and kind of just recollecting your heritage. Um, I actually had an uncle a few weeks ago, went out and visited um, our medicine man at our tribe. And, you know, you find out a lot of really cool things um, from your past. Now, um, so are medicine men and women still um, pretty prominent? Uh, yes, they are very. Um, I have never interacted with one. I would love to because they can tell you some really amazing things. Like you can find out your native name, um, you know, what clan you're from. Your um, There's colors that are associated with your uh, native identity, things like that. Um, I'm not too sure how, I think, you have to kind of um, come into a realization 
that you are one or you have like a vision, things like that. But I'm not exactly positive on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember um, when I went to a powwow this summer, I remember reading a book about um, all these like health remedies and, you know, eat, you know, have this herb and it will cure, you know, some some disease. And um, I remember reading various articles about all of these um you know, ways that um, medicine men and women would help cure people naturally. Um, do you think that a lot of those types of things um, are forgotten, or do you think that uh, medicine men and women are still um, remember all those remedies? Um, I still think it's extremely prominent. I know that when my grandmother was sick, because she was full-blooded Ojibwe, um, she often went up and saw our tribal medicine man. Um, and she carried in um, Ojibwe culture, they have uh, medicine bags. There's these kind of like purse-type pocket made out of buckskin, um, and they put tobacco inside of them because tobacco is um, traditionally an extremely spiritual element. Um, and that just provided her comfort when she was, you know, extremely sick, just having that there with her. Um, and I think, you know, with alternative medicine and things, holistic health, all of that emerging these days, I think a lot of that's coming back, um, and especially within the Native community. Okay. Now, going back to something that you talked about earlier about powwows, saying that, um, you know, after colonization for a while, people kind of lost touch and maybe didn't have powwows as much in this, and powwows are kind of, um, you know, a family reunion. It brings people together, gets them back in touch with their culture again. Um, I actually took an anthropology class this past fall, um, and I read a book about um, a community in British Columbia, Columbia um, called Alkali Lake, and it talked about a lot of social issues that um, surround some Native American communities, such as, you know, them being isolated and kind of living off the government and being introduced to alcohol, but only being introduced to alcohol in the form of binge drinking. So in a lot of Native American communities, there's a heavy amount of alcoholism. And since they kind of lost, you know, they, they couldn't go out and, you know, hunt anymore or fish because they were relying completely on government money. Um, and so these communities were almost destroyed. And some generations, you know, the, the grandparents would kind of sit back, you know, their, you know, their sons or daughters, you know, you know, went down this downward spiral, and kids were never taught um, the culture. And then um, in this community that I read about, I think 98% of the people um, became uh, alcoholics, and um, and um, and they said that within, I think, 13 years, I think they had 100% sobriety. And they said what really helped them is contacting other nations and having them come in and perform powwows. So they felt like they got their culture again. Um, do you see that happening a lot? Um, well, I know specifically in my tribe, well, and I think that alcoholism really falls within all races. And I think that's one, like, stereotype of Native American people is the alcohol issue. Um, you know, in my tribe, of course, there are issues of alcohol, but I think there are elsewhere as well. Um, but I can see how powwows would help dealing with that and um, would bring more sobriety because I think that Native people feel more comfortable when they know that they have a community they can rely on. Um, and you know, I just, I think that alcoholism really is a nationwide issue. Um, you know, it's hard to just pin it on one group of people. Mm -hmm. um, now, how often do powwows occur in Michigan? 
You know, it depends on your tribe. I know every year my tribe has various one. The big one is um, in the summer, the 4th of July powwow. Um, and I have heard that the MSU powwow love, ours is kind of like the beginning of um, powwow season, as they say. So beginning in the spring and all the way throughout summer and fall, there are just powwows everywhere, you know, because there are so many um, different tribes throughout Michigan that, you know, anywhere you are, I'm sure you could probably find one or two <laughs> to go to. Okay. Um, now, when I've been to powwows, I remember saying to someone, you know, listening to um, people beating on the drums and, um, you know, singing, um, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how, you know, as because I'm a music major, and I, I think to myself, I don't know how people could notate music. So when yeah. it comes to learning songs for powwows, how are songs learned? Are they, is it um, kind of improvised in the moment, or are songs memorized, you know, passed down through generations, or is there actually paper notated music that people learn off from? Um, you know, in my experience, uh, it's just, it's passed on to you from elders, from family members, um, you know, especially in Native culture, uh, everything is orally emphasized. Um, and a lot of the songs that are performed at powwows are, you know, have traditional meanings. You know, we have a Native flag song, which um, is performed in the beginning, which is like, you know, the national anthem um, and things like that. So I wouldn't say there's necessarily a notated music on paper physically, um, but it's more of just a, you know, learning from your relatives um, and just picking it up from those around you. Okay. Now, what is um, proper powwow etiquette? Proper, proper powwow etiquette. Well, first of all, um, during the flag song, it's just like the national anthem. You stand up, you take off your hat. Um, and uh, with elders, you know, there's a really high emphasis on respecting, uh, you know, senior citizens and those around you. Um, trying to think of any others, um, and especially with the regalia, um, you know, just to respect uh, the dancers, especially if you want to um, take a picture or shoot some video, you know, it's always polite just to ask, and most of them are, you know, extremely willing to let you snap a photo or whatnot, but even myself as a Native person, I usually ask, you know, just to, just to be sure, um, and, you know, nowadays I think that a lot of the Native people are very willing and very open to questions or, um, you know, if you want to ask on any insight on anything, they're extremely, you know, willing to answer your questions. So Okay. Now, have you ever participated in a powwow? I haven't, actually. Um, you know, a lot of the dancers grew up dancing, and unfortunately, my grandma didn't pass that on to my family. Um, you know, I do know the basic two-step, and I can get in the circle and, you know, dance to the drum beat, but um, I don't do any specific dancing, which I'm really disappointed in, but, you know, I'm hoping someday that if I have kids, you know, I can start them out young and um, get them involved with powwow dance. Okay. Now, this, um, the powwow this weekend is put on by NASO, correct? Yes. Yep. Um, now, what um, what does NASO stand for, and um, how is it beneficial to MSU students? Well, NASO stands for the North American Indigenous Student Organization. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and um, we are a student group composed of primarily Native students. Um, and, you know, we're just an outlet for uh, Native students to come and feel welcome and to explore their culture. You know, although we identify as Native Americans, there's still a lot of things that even myself, 
you know, I'm discovering uh, through my involvement with NASO. And, you know, we do encourage um, non-Native people to come and, you know, to learn more about the Indigenous culture and you just to, you know, get some experience with a variety of people. Okay. Now, what percent of MSU students would you say um, aren't have Native ancestry? Oh, wow. Probably <laughs> less than 5%, maybe. I, I know it's an extremely small number. <laughs> okay. There's uh, not many. <laughs> now, my last question before I start wrapping things up is, what is your favorite aspect of Native American culture? Um, I think that it's, um, you know, since my grandmother passed away a few years ago, it's a way for me to um, remain close to her spiritually. Um, and I just find it fascinating, you know, to learn all this history and to relate it back to my grandma. And it's, you know, a way for me to continually think of her. And, um, you know, I just I just think uh, cultures are extremely amazing, and I just find it extremely interesting. Okay. Now, is there anything else that you want to mention about the event? Um, and where can people go for more information? And again, when and where will the powwow be held? Oh, sure. Um, it's going to be this Saturday and Sunday, February 21st and 22nd at Jenison Fieldhouse. The doors are going to open at 10 a.m. both days. Um, and there, more information can be found at www.msu.edu backslash tilde N-A-I-S-O. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Melissa, for your time. I know you are actually in class right now and probably <laughs> waiting in the hallway somewhere, so I won't take up any more of your time, but thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. All right. We're actually finishing up the show early tonight because we do not have a fourth guest unexpectedly. Um, but before I finish up the hour, um, I wanted to let you know a few events that are going on this week. Um, tomorrow on Wednesday, uh, UAB presents leadership and education speaker series. And this weekend, this or this week, the series will be focus on exercise, health, beauty, and wellness at 7 p.m. at MSU Union Gold Room B on the second floor. There will be a yoga session as well as a discussion on health and well-being. And also on Wednesday, still don't know what to do this summer, there will be a summer employment and internship fair. Again, that's Wednesday from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Kellogg Hotel and Conference Center. And on Thursday, um, Japan's virtuoso percussion ensemble makes its triumphant return to Wharton Center as part of its One Earth Tour. You can see performers play on percussion instruments as small as a saucer and others as long as a tree trunk. Um, I've had great experiences seeing percussion ensembles. Um, I've seen some performed at um, MSU, the Music College, and, um, I mean, it's just a very unique performance. People will just, you know, get out cymbals and roll them around the floor and kind of make music that way, all with percussion instruments. Or I've seen um, a complete percussion ensemble play um, a full, I mean, it was basically a full orchestra, but with only percussion instruments playing along to a silent film. Um, but they're, they're great shows. And again, this is, um, this is called uh, Kodo, One Earth Tour, and that's at the Wharton Center at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday. For more information, you can go to whartoncenter.com or call 1-800-WHARTON. And on Friday... The Vagina Monologues come to Fairchild Theater on Friday. Um, this is a series of monologues based on Eve um, Enster's interviews with women on relationships. 
um, sex and violence against women. Proceeds will benefit the MSU sexual assault program. And again, that's Friday at 8 p.m. and Saturday at 2 and 8 p.m. For more information, call 1-800-WHARTON or go to wartoncenter.com. And then also on Friday at 9 p.m. at the International Center, the Square Pegs will be performing 80s music all night long, and 80s dress is recommended. Then on Saturday, Black Violin will perform at 9 p.m. at Erickson Kiva. Black Violin combines jazz, funk, hip-hop, and classical music. Members Will and Kev appear on stage at the 2004 Billboard Music Awards with Alicia Keys, and in 2005 received the title of Apollo Legend. And also this weekend is the 26th annual MSU powwow, which I just did an interview on, so I don't need to tell you any more about that. So that will be it for the evening, and we will be finishing the show 10 minutes early. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.